the box please for their help. One more surge, and I hope to be as good as new. God's blessings to you all. Thank you to Pastor Wigan, Pastor Mark, and Pastor Chris. We're glad to have John here this morning. Thankful to have him back with us. Revelation chapter 1, if you want to join me in verse 9. It would be great for us to read um, all of chapter 1 before we read our text for this morning. A time would not permit us to do that. So we're going to just jump into verse 9, and we read this. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus on the island of Patmos on account of God's word and testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus and Smyrna Pergama and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned and to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the golden lampstands, or the lampstands, one was one like the Son of Man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pray with me. Father, God, we sit here this morning at the feet of Jesus. And as we hear from Jesus, literally, the words of Jesus this morning, our prayer is that you would give us ears to hear your spirit, eyes to see your son, and hearts to worshipfully obey you. And we pray this, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In Revelation chapter 1, we find out that John, the apostle John, has a vision. And he sees Jesus. And there's this great description of what he sees. And man, I don't know about you, but just reading that by itself is, is stirring. It's challenging. It's, there's so many questions, yet there's so much uh, sense of wanting to, to get down and, and worship this Jesus if we ever were to see him. And one day, for those of us who know him, we, in fact, will. But we see that John sees Jesus. And then he finds out that he's supposed to write some things down. He's supposed to write down in verse 19 those things that are and those things that 
will take place after this. Additionally, in chapters 2 and 3, we find out that he hears about seven churches, seven different churches in Asia Minor. In these seven churches, he gives seven letters. These letters are God's message or Christ's message to the church. They are letters from Jesus to local churches. And whereas these are specific churches, they are named, they as well were circulated, but it also, these, each of these letters speaks to issues within the church universal. Issues that, that every local church that names the name of Jesus must hear and heed. So in effect, the, the summary of, of all seven letters of all these seven churches are, are things and issues that, that churches throughout history of the New Testament church have experienced and will experience. These letters are about the dangers that are threatening the church, both from within and from without. One commentator says it this way, some believe all church history is embodied in the history of these seven churches of Asia. I think these churches are typical of churches of all ages. I think as we learn about these churches, we may very much agree. The first letter in the letter that we look at this morning will be to the church in Ephesus. Now, one writer says that Ephesus was a chief city in the providence of Asia. It was both the religious and the commercial center of the entire area, which influenced both the East and the West, that being Europe and Asia. It was a port city. It was on a harbor. It was a gateway, they would say, to Asia. Ephesus was the home of of the worship of Artemis, you may have heard of, or sometimes called Diane, whose temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the the largest Greek temple ever constructed. This temple served as as a bank, it, it displayed uh, um, art and several masterpieces in that area. Right off the port, there, there, were, there was a, a vast library. Uh, there was a marketplace that was well uh, known for, uh, for uh, their, their selling of goods. It was a large city. It was the third largest city in that area, Three, some maybe, some 300,000 people. It was an important city. It was a big city. It was a city city. It was a city like we think of cities. This was a city like you think of a city, right? It had all the things that you might think of in a city, both good and bad. And Jesus writes a letter to the church that exists in this city. And he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, writes. Now that word angel might be better translated messenger. And the reason why it can be, it can be, um, translated messenger, and one of the reasons why it may be better translated messenger is because of who the angel of the church is being referred to, that being referred to the leader of the church, or the elder, or the pastors of the church. No, no angel leads a local church. God appoints men to do that, and so this letter is written to the elders or the pastors of the, the church in Ephesus, and he says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
This church is a church in Ephesus, and the one who is writing to this church identifies himself with the words that we find earlier in chapter 1, where we find out that this is a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is speaking here. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And who are the seven stars but the seven messengers, the seven leaders, the seven pastors of these churches? He holds them in his hand. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. We find that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. This describes for us his activity among these churches. He is not passive. He is involved. He is active in the local church. He's guarding the local church. And as a, as a high priest would walk around the sanctuary, so here we see Jesus walking around and in the midst of the lampstands. This phrasing of he holds the stars in his right hand also indicates for us power. The right hand in, in the Bible, sorry left-handers, the right hand in the Bible denotes power. What, what it's referencing here. So Jesus is in charge. He's holding on to these men, and he is in charge of them. And as a pastor, and for our church in general, this is beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful to think that Jesus is that involved? Isn't it beautiful in assuring that he is about the local church? It is all those things, and it is also sobering to know that Jesus holds this church. He holds all churches. It is, in fact, his church. Right, that's what he said of himself in Matthew chapter 16, when he tells Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is it true for us? Is it true for the Ephesians? We too are the church, and Jesus is the head of this church. So we are a lampstand, friends. We are a church like Ephesus is a church. And, and what must we be about? If we are his church, maybe some good questions for us is, well, what, what does he want for our church? What, what kind of lampstand are we being? What kind of things are we reflecting to those around us? What kind of testimony do we have? What kind of character do we have? What kind of things are we asking God for? What kind of things do we think God is pleased by? We ask him why, because make no mistake, there's one overseer of the church. It's not Pastor Wigan. There's one shepherd. It's not Pastor Wigan. There's a great shepherd. There's an overseer over all the church, and that is Jesus himself, the one who we take our, our marching orders from. He answers our questions. He calls the shots, and we would all do well this morning to listen to him. So let's. In verses 2 and 3, we find out that, that Jesus begins with some commendations. And we start in verse 2. I know your works, your, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who are called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake that you have not grown in, that you have not grown weary. Jump down to verse 6. We'll put all these combinations together. Yet this I have, yet, the, yet, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. Beginning of verse 2, beginning of verse 3, I know. Jesus starts off by saying, I know your works. In verse 3, I know that you are, and he continues on from there. What we find out real early is that Jesus knows everything. Jesus is saying to this church, I know it. I know all about you guys. I mean, that, that is uh, that truth about Jesus, right? that he is all-knowing. That reminds us that he knows everything, right? That's a good thing. But it also reminds us that he knows everything, doesn't he? And so he starts so graciously here by commending them because he knows everything. Some of you may know this passage, and the whole passage isn't affirming. It's not all common commendation. It's not, not all positive, but he graciously starts and affirms where he can. What an example that is for how we might treat others. But in verse 2, it says this, I know your works, your toils, your patient endurance. Back up. Yeah, we'll go through one by one. Your works, toil, and patient endurance. The works here is, is the idea of good works. The, the toil here is, is hard work. And the patient endurance is the per, per, preserving, persevering endurance in the face of difficulty. These guys worked hard. They were after it. They were doing stuff. Second part of verse 2, we say, see, they, they cannot bear evil. They, they don't put up with evil. They don't, they don't tolerate it. That's a good thing. That, that, that's something that should be affirmed. In some ways, this is missing in a lot of our churches, isn't it? The idea is standing up and saying, no more. Not just to cultural wars, but actual to, to real life issues. Real issues that, that are affecting not just our country, but humanity. Yes, we care about America. We should care about America. But you know what? Some of the issues that we're talking about, they go far beyond the borders of our, our country. And quite frankly, they're not political issues. They're not firstly political issues. They are namely issues of God, issues of morality, issues of, of what God has called us to. Not necessarily what kind of country we want to be. Not necessarily what kind of people we want to be. What, what is God calling us to be? Do not bear evil. They cannot bear it. They don't put up with it. They don't tolerate it. May that be said of us. Not only do they not tolerate works and those sorts of things, but they don't tolerate false brethren, false doctrine. Galatians chapter 6 tells us that we are to be gentle and to, to care about the weak brethren. But we are not to put up with the false brethren. They are to be called out and dealt with. The rest of that verse tells us that they, they tested the quote-unquote apostles. Well, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. These Ephesians were pretty good at doctrine. They could actually spot the lie. They could actually tell what was right and what was wrong in regard to these apostles. John says elsewhere in his first epistle, John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets 
are gone in, out into the, the world. This is not a, a new concern for the Apostle John or the Apostle Paul or for the local church. This is something that throughout the New Testament we find, even in respect to the church of Ephesus. In Acts chapters 19 and 20 we find it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 we find it. These warnings, these, this understanding that there is false teaching and we need to be aware of it and not to put up with it. Verse 3, they endured patiently. Again, we see that same phrasing. It, they bore up for my name's sake. They did not grow weary. Another translation would say, thou hast not wearied out with labor. They didn't quit. They endured. They didn't give up when it was hard. They continued to follow Jesus. Verse 6, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. The works of the Nicolaitans. Now, some have offered different ideas of what this might mean. J. Vernon McGee offers one possible explanation, among others, but this is the one that, that uh, he kind of lands on, and I think he's probably right, too. But this, this option, he looks at an actual man named Nicholas of Antioch, who apostatized from the truth, formed an antinomian Gnostic cult, which taught that one must indulge in sin in order to understand it, They gave themselves over to sensuality with the explanation that such sins did not touch the Spirit. And of that, the church of Ephesians hated their works, and rightly hated their works. And Jesus affirms that because at the end of that verse, he says, I hate their works too. It's good and right to hate the works that are not of God. And that, friends, is where the affirmation stops. We come to verse 4. There's something missing. There's something missing in this church. And Jesus says this, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He rebukes them. He rebukes them for what? For losing or walking away from, abandoning, leaving, the love they had at first. And who is this love? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Keep in mind, this is some 30 years maybe after Paul wrote the epistle to the church in Ephesus. And he noted in chapter 1, for this reason, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Just in that span of time, now we're having these sorts of issues, how quickly things change. See, the Ephesus church was, was taught well. It actually has this grand history of great pastors, and great leadership. Paul was there for some three years. Timothy was there. The apostle John himself was there at the church in Ephesus. It was from there where he was arrested and sent to exile in the island and the island it was a great church, had a great tradition, had a great history. And yet, and yet, they lost the main thing. They lost the main thing. I was talking to a pastor just the other day about a, a parachurch organization. I asked him kind of what he knew about that organization. And he said, well, they, uh, they, they're really good on Jesus. Uh, they try to keep it all about Jesus, but sometimes it results in them downplaying theology. 
then he went on to say, but to be honest, I spent a lot of my life letting my theology downplay Jesus. If you're not sure what that means, then you might not quite understand what we're getting at right now. See, there's a way for us to know all about this book and miss Jesus. There's a way for us to come here every Sunday and miss Jesus. There's a way for us to sing songs and miss Jesus. There's a way for you to wake up every day and read your Bible and miss Jesus. It's possible. And quite frankly, in a lot of our churches, it is likely. Here's the deal. We must remember, this book, this Bible, is primarily about the person of Jesus. It is not about you. It is not about me. It is about what God has done through his Son. He is the main subject. Remember, even this book, the Revelation, it's not just the Revelation. It's not Revelations, as Pastor Wigan likes to correct everyone, right? It's the Revelation of who? Jesus Christ. That's what the book is about. And sometimes we read these books and we want to talk about everything other than Jesus. We, we want to talk about all these end time things. I'm not saying that isn't there, but the person is Jesus that we're looking at. Don't miss Jesus. That seems so simple, doesn't it? It seems so Sunday school of us, doesn't it? And yet here's a church with this great history of great pastors, apostles, and they missed it. You can miss it. Missing Jesus is not missing a point. It is missing the point. Know that. If you are not seeing Jesus in the Scriptures, you're not just missing a point of the Scriptures, you're missing the Scriptures. God wants you to know about Jesus. You can know all the Bible and all the theology and all the doctrine and read all the books and not know Jesus. And all that knowledge, you know where that'll get you? That'll get you to hell if you don't have Jesus. See, these Ephesians, they were busy, man. They were after it. They were doing stuff. They had Martha problems, right? Mary and Martha, remember that story? Where Jesus shows up, and, and Martha is busy getting things ready for Jesus, doing work. And Mary, Mary's just sitting around. She's doing nothing. She's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, that's real helpful, right, for Martha. Martha's working. Martha doesn't like the idea that here's Mary. All she wants to do is worship Jesus. i got to do the work. She says, Jesus, what's going on? That's not okay. I'm stuck with all the work. And Jesus is saying to Martha, Martha, you're missing it. Mary isn't missing it. You're missing it. All your work, that's sideways energy, friend. You need to see Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. I'm, I'm only here for a while. Don't worry about the dishes. Come, spend time with me. Love me. Word Wiersbe says, labor is no substitute for love. He continues, busy working for the Lord, but no sincere love for him. Programs without passion. This is the busy church with great statistics, 
but one drifting away from heartfelt devotion to Christ. They, and churches like ours, can become lifeless, loveless orthodoxy. Or we can get all the words right. We can quote our confessions of faith. We can tell everybody about what we believe. We sound a lot like what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. When he writes in verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Go ahead with your knowledge. Go ahead with all your, all your biblical knowledge. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. We need information for transformation. That's true. But if we never get to the transformation and all we get is information, we are short. We have fallen short. But God, again, in His grace, does not leave us just with the rebuke. He moves on in verse 5 to tell us about the solution. The solution is this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Three things. Repent. Excuse me. Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember how you used to love me. Remember how it used to be. This is like the idea of the the husband and wife who years and years down the road kind of look at themselves and say, how did it get like this? Right? It wasn't always like this, was it? We need to remember what it was. Remember the, the, the honeymoon love, right? Go back. Remember what it was like before. Go back and, and find it, in a sense. Get, get back to that. See, this was not a love that was lost, and they don't know how it was lost. And this isn't like I, I lost my you know, sunglasses. I don't know where it's at. That's not the, the, the loss that we're talking about here. The, the better phrasing is left or abandoned, meaning they walked away. They did it. It didn't happen to them. They did it. Love is a choice. That's true for all of us in our relationships too, isn't it? We don't lose love. We choose to love. Love doesn't just walk out the door on us. We walk out the door. And Jesus isn't walking out the door. So what, how is this loss of love? How is this leaving or abandoning? It's us. Remember where you have fallen. Secondly, repent. Repent of what? Of their failure to love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. First and great commandment. We could spend the rest of our time talking, which is not very much time. We could spend a whole other time talking about repentance. We could. And you know, we'd probably do well to do that, all of us spending some time on repentance. But let's just say it this way. Repentance is the idea of turning from something to something. Right? The idea of a 180 degree turn. It's that I'm, I'm in this way, and now I'm turned to go another way. It's turning from sin to God. And friends, that's what makes the difference between a Christ follower and someone who doesn't know Jesus. It's not that they don't sin. The Christ follower sins. Yes, they do. The difference is they, they repent. That's the difference between a Christ follower and someone who is far from God. Repent. Repent of your lovelessness. 
Repent and know that you can be forgiven. Here's the great truth for the Christian. The Bible assures us that repentance is not your enemy. Repentance is actually your friend. How is it your friend? Because we are guaranteed forgiveness through Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, John the Apostle says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So forgiveness is guaranteed. There's assurance in forgiveness that you will be, excuse me, in repentance, you will be forgiven. So now confession and repentance are not our enemies. They are our friends. They are the doors by which we enter back into fellowship with God, made possible through him who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ as Jesus gives up his righteousness on the cross and offers it to us, declaring us right with God. So because of that, we can come before God. That's how we come before God, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Thirdly, return. Do the work you did at first. So remember how it was? Turn around and come back. Get back at it. Start doing what you were, you were meant to be doing. The imagery here, I think of it, is, is the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son who made choices, bad choices, walked away, had some really bad experiences, remembers how good it was, turns, comes home, repents, and gets back to work. And friends, today, Jesus is calling the prodigal. He's calling the prodigal's home. The call is to repent and return. What's standing in your way from doing that this morning? Is there anything standing in your way? There, there ought not to be. Jump over it. Knock it down. Kick the door down. Come to Jesus in repentance. The Ephesians needed to hear that call. Yes, there were good things going on in life. Yep. Yeah, they knew the doctrine. Yep. Yep, they even knew how to spot out evil. That's true. But they didn't love. They didn't love. It seems so absolutely basic that we would love, yet it is so dangerously possible for us to miss it, the consequences of which are damning. And he talks about the consequences in the rest of verse 5 when he says, if not, if not what? If they don't repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand, your lampstand, from its place unless you repent. I will come. Man, we want Jesus to come, don't we? Right? Not like this, you don't. This is not hooray, Jesus is coming. This is not a rapture, second coming, or death. This is he coming in judgment. This is not how we want Jesus to come. We do not want to see Jesus here. We do not want Jesus to come and remove the lampstand. That is not the way we want Jesus to come. He's removing the lampstand. He's taking away the light. You get what that means? He's shutting it down. He's turning off the lights. He's pulled the plug. It's over. Eviction. Nothing to see here. It's finished. It's over. Unless you repent. There's hope. 
God of grace, there's hope. There's hope for the wayward one who is living an unloving way. God offers hope. God offers grace. God offers forgiveness. Church, hear the words of Jesus. To remember, to repent, and to return. May we recognize our sin in our lives, both individually and corporately. You know, we sin as a corporate body too. You know that? truth is we have far more to repent of than we may first believe. Thanks be to God that he forgives. Finally, he promises some things for the conquerors, or for the overcomers. But first he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear. Now, Jesus was fond of saying that as well, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. Why? Because not everyone actually hears. That's true. It's true this morning, right? It's true for my children. <laughs> they, might, they might figuratively hear me, or, you know, my mouth is moving, but they don't hear the words that are coming out, right? That happens. And so Jesus is saying, if you have an ear to hear, if you actually will sit in the seat of the learner, if you actually humble yourself and be willing to listen to the words of Jesus, let that, let that one hear. Let that one get it today. We started off by praying that God would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. Then he offers a promise to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes. Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 answers who the overcomer is. In chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that, that has overcome the world, our faith. It is, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's the overcomer? The overcomer is the Christian. So today, for, for us who know Jesus, who are overcomers, we can know of this promise, this gift. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But this also indicates for us, this conquering, this overcoming, indicates that there's warfare indicates that there's, there's trial, there's trouble, there's difficulty. And wouldn't you know that, that Paul, in his epistle, his letter to the Ephesians earlier in the New Testament, writes a little bit about that, doesn't he? In chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul writes about the armor of God. He writes about what we need to put on in order to actually stand in our day. And even at the end of that section, he prays for perseverance that we would persevere even to the end. May we be overcomers. May we know that because of what Christ has done for us. The promise he will grant and he will give a gift. It is to eat of the tree of life. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Did we hear about the tree of life? Sure you did. In the book of Genesis, we find that tree, don't we? In chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, after the fall, God says, you're out of the garden. You cannot eat of the tree of life. You are, you are unable to have access to that tree any longer. There now is a separation that has, has happened. And how could we receive that gift? We, we go a little bit further in the Bible. We come to Revelation chapter, a little further from where we're at, into Revelation chapter 22, and we find that tree again. That tree shows up again. Beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible. Beautiful. 
where is it? To the paradise of God. It's in heaven. Some of your Bibles might say the garden of God. We see these bookends to the Bible. This, this paradise that, that, that was once had in the beginning of the Bible was lost through sin. And mankind has, has struggled and tried through good works and deeds to get back to God and could never do it. And then God in His grace came. He came through His Son to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And that is to pay your debt of sin and live. And he offers to you and me salvation through his death. That any and all who would believe would have eternal life. And that life would not start just when we die. That life starts now. Life with Jesus starts now, friends. If you got saved and think that I'll, I'll get to that when I die, you're missing it. The idea of coming to Jesus is not waiting until I die to get, get, get in with Jesus. The idea is when I come to Jesus, now I'm Jesus's. I'm his possession. And my life with Jesus begins now. If you've never experienced that, friends, then this gift is not for you today. You can't claim this gift. You cannot claim the gift of, of eating from this tree. It's not for you. It's only for those who have come to Christ. And I pray that you would this morning. We've been talking a lot about the church of Ephesus and bouncing back between us and them. But we would be remiss if we didn't say this. Whatever happened to that church in Ephesus? One of those where are they now episodes, right? What, where, whatever happened to that church? Brothers and sisters, that church, which is now in the area called modern-day Turkey, is gone. It does not exist. The lampstand has been taken. And in the places where that lampstand stood are now false religions. People that are leading other people to hell. Gone. That is sobering, friends. A church that started out so great with such, such promise, such emphasis. God put so much, so much emphasis on that church. So much teaching, early teaching. So many of the, the big hitters of the Bible and of the church were at that church. And what now? They don't even exist. Be on guard, friends, that you and I can so easily become like that loveless church. And our church, consequently, can become like that loveless church. A few ways that happens is this. is when we are more about the what than the how or the who. When we are more about the what than the how or the who. Amanda and I say this to each other all the time about, about when talking with someone. It's not necessarily what you say, but it's how you say it that matters. You can say hard things in a way that you don't hurt someone. You don't have to say it hurtfully even though it's heavy. When you're more concerned about the what than the how or even the who, we're on the road to a loveless church. When we think... Go ahead, next one. When we think about Jesus as an idea, not a person. 
when we think about Jesus as an idea or, or a concept and not a relationship, when we're more about, quote-unquote, church work than we are Jesus worship, we're on our road to a loveless church. When we are known more for what we are against than what we are for, when we, in our pursuit of righteousness, miss the righteous one. We're on, our, on the road to a loveless church. And finally, when we're known more for what we do than who we love. One writer says, we'll know how much we love God by how much we love God. So if Jesus were to write a letter to our faith family here in Carroll, what might he say? Would there be commendations? I believe there would be. Would there be rebuke? I believe there would be. Maybe one way to evaluate that would be this. If you were the, the standard by which Jesus evaluated our church, would there be affirmation? Would there be rebuke? Here's the good news. The solution for all of us is the same. It's the same as it was for these demons. To remember, to repent, and to return. That's the invitation to you this morning. Remember, repent, and return. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Give us for caring more about doing than loving. For being more interested in, in working than worship. For seeking to pursue righteousness without the righteous one. God, I pray that you would give us a heart to love. To love Jesus and to love the people of Jesus. Where there is a hatred, Father, I pray you would lead us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing one stanza.